This is the day that the Lord has made, and we should rejoice and be glad in it. My name is Brandon Reddick, and I have the honor, the privilege, and the pleasure of serving as the lead servant here at the Bridge Church, where we exist to develop fully devoted followers of Christ in a multi-ethnic context. We want to continue this morning in our series in the book of Matthew. So if you have your Bibles, I would ask that you would turn there or swipe there. Chapter number two, beginning with verse number 13. Matthew chapter number two, beginning with verse 13. As is our custom, we stand in honor and reverence to God's holy word. Matthew chapter number 2, beginning with verse number 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. 
But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's make sure those on the live stream can hear me well. This passage in Matthew chapter number 2, beginning with verse 13 through 23, this is... this sermon, I want to approach a little differently than we normally go through a passage. Typically, we go verse by verse, section by section, explain it, and then we apply it. Today, I just want to look at two themes that flow through these passages and then help us apply those themes into our lives. The first thing that I want to show us and share with us this morning is the theme of the prophetic fulfillment of Scripture. The prophetic fulfillment of Scripture. As we've said in other sermons, Matthew is written to a Jewish audience. And his aim in writing this gospel is to prove that Jesus is the long-awaited, long-promised Messiah and King. And one of the strategies that he uses and proving this claim is to show how Jesus and the events and circumstances surrounding his life are fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. In chapter 2 alone, we see Matthew telling his audience that certain events happen, here it is, in order to fulfill that which was said by the prophets. We saw this last week in the story of the wise men in Matthew chapter 2, verse 5. We saw them saying that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem, which was uh, quoted from Micah chapter 5, verses 2. This week we see clearly in three different places this fulfillment formula and where Matthew says that this was done in order to fulfill what the prophets have written. We see this three times in the passages today. In verse 15, in verse 17, in verse number 23. And so what we have here is a literary unit. Matthew's aim in these three sections is very clear. 
He wants us to know that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. Thus he is the Jewish Messiah king that has long been promised. So what does this thing of prophetic fulfillment of scripture teach us? It teaches us Beloved, that Jesus Christ is wholly submissive to Scripture. What this teaches us is Jesus Christ bends his will to the will of his Father as revealed in Scripture. Jesus does what the Father has revealed in Scripture. Said another way, we can say that Jesus lived by the book. Look, 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 look. His conception was set forth in the book. His birth was revealed in the book. The circumstances of his life were told in the book. His resurrection was even predicted in the book and came to pass by the book. The whole of the life of Jesus was predicted in the book. It's clear, beloved, that Jesus lived by the book. He submitted his own will to the will of the Father. It was his joy to do the will of his Father. And beloved, can it be said of us that we are people who live by the book? Listen, I don't know about you, but I want my life to be by the book. I want my marriage to be by the book. I want my singleness to be by the book. I want our church to be by the book. Jesus lived by the book, and so ought we to live by the book. There are times, and and let's be honest, there are times when I don't want to hear what the book has to say. There are times when my heart, my desires, my uh, all of that wants to do one thing, but the book says to do another thing. And Jesus says, if those two are ever in conflict, you better live by the book. Don't, 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 don't get it twisted. Jesus sometimes struggled with his own, the will of the Father. Can you see him there in the garden of Gethsemane when sweat like drops of blood ran down his brow? And there he knew what was on the horizon. The cross was before him and Jesus said, to the Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Jesus even struggled at times with the will of his Father. And like Jesus, so will we. We've got our own wills, our own sinful wills. But Jesus, show us how we ought to submit to the will of the Father. Here is what he said, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus lived by the book. So the question for us today is will we live by the book or will we live by our own will? So we see this first theme of the fulfillment, the prophetic fulfillment of scripture. Now this second point, I need to become professor for a moment, so be patient with me. And then I will give you the significance. So we see this prophetic fulfillment of scripture, but secondly, a theme or theology that's in this section of scriptures is the providence of God. 
the providence of God. As we read these passages, we can't help but take note that God is guiding, directing, protecting, and preserving the life of Jesus Christ. What we see in these passages is that God is involved in the details of the life of Christ. He's no mere spectator. No, no, no. He's an active participant in the universe. And beloved, what I'm describing is the theological doctrine known as the providence of God. What do I mean? What do I mean? How do I define the providence of God. I define the providence of God as the execution of God's decrees in history by his preservation of all his creatures, his governance of creation, and his concurrence with his creatures' actions. Let's, let's run that again. I define the providence of God as the execution of God's decrees in history by his preservation of all creation, his governance of creation, and his concurrence with his creature's actions. Let me break that down for you. This doctrine means that God works all things according to his purpose and plan for his glory and the good of his people. And we see all three elements of the providence of God in our passages today. We see God's preservation, God's governance, and concurrence in our passage today. Let's take a look at them. When we speak of preservation, we're referring to God's act of sustaining, sustaining all that he has created. Preservation refers to God's acts of sustaining all that he has created. After God created the world, he didn't just leave creation to care for, him, for itself. He rested, but he didn't say, I'm done. What, what, what providence teaches us is that creation is not self-sustaining. God is the reason for creation's continued existence. So preservation teaches that God continually provides his cre creatures with all things that they need. Where in this passage then do we see preservation? I, I, I must admit that when I was specifically looking for preservation as defined by myself, <laughs> I was struggling to find this idea of sustained continued existence. This idea of continued being. And y'all, I must admit, it was so clear in the text, I almost missed it. Where do we see preservation in the text? God's preservation in the text is the child. No, 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 no. Not his preservation of the child. His, the pres preservation is the child. Jesus is the means by which God preserves the universe. 
Okay, okay, let me prove it to you. Colossians chapter 1 verse 17 says this about Christ. And he is before all things, and here it is, and in him all things hold together. Beloved, without Christ's continual influence, the planets, the stars, the angels themselves will dissolve into nothing. This idea of preservation by Christ is repeated in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, which says that Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power. And this verse teaches that Christ supports the entire created universe by the energy of his mere will. That's the preservation in the text. Let's look at God's governance, the second aspect of providence. God's governance of his creation. Let's define our terms so we're all on the same page. By governance, I mean God's continued activity in guiding and directing all events to accomplish his divine purpose. That's my fault. I messed that up. God's continued activity and God in directing all events to accomplish his divine purpose. This idea of governance is, is, is closely tied to God's sovereignty. This idea of sovereignty means that God rules over all his creation. He rules over the universe. He rules over the weather. He rules over the plants and animals. He rules over the nations, the kings, kingdoms, and every human life. He even rules over the how many earthquakes did we have yesterday? There is nothing outside the realm of God's control. Where do we see governance in our text today? We see it clearly in our passage. Watch this. God intervenes by way of an angel and tells Joseph in verse 13 to take the family to Egypt because Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Here's God's governance. He's involved in the preservation and protection of the child through his governance. He is guiding and directing Joseph so that Jesus is not prematurely murdered. God has a divine purpose for Jesus Christ to die on the cross for the sin of the world. So God intervenes to protect the child so that he is not murdered by Herod, which... Murder of babies happened in the next section. But then again, we see God guiding and directing his people in verse 20. When the angel tells Joseph, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. Then again in verse 22, Joseph is warned again in a dream to go to Galilee because there is another ruthless king on the throne. Again, God providentially guides and directs his people so that they can accomplish his divine purposes. That's governance. Let's look at concurrence. Concurrence, we, when you think of concurrence, you can also think of cooperation. By concurrence, I mean the cooperation of the divine power with all subordinate powers which causes them to act and they act precisely as they do. It's the cooperation of the divine power with all subordinate powers which causes them to act and act precisely as they do. Now, when we think of concurrence or cooperation, we shouldn't think 
of, of, of concurrence like it's two horses pulling a wagon, as if God and man are equal. That's not how we should think about concurrence. God is the first mover. God is the first cause of all things. So what we see is God working in and through creation, resulting in the cause of certain actions and events. And so, like we said, God's the first cause of all things, and then creation becomes the secondary cause. How does God cause things? And how does this idea of concurrence work between God and man? God works through three causes. One is called necessary causes. That's what we call the law of nature. Then, the, the, give, let me give you an example. Jesus uh, uh, told his disciples, hey, let's go to the other side. They, they get in this, in this boat, and then there's a big storm. Jesus is asleep, but his disciples are worrying. And they go to Jesus, and they say, carest thou not that we perish? Oh, I just went King James on y'all, my bad. Don't you care that we are about to die? And, and Jesus gets up, and he speaks to the winds and the wave, and he says, peace, be still. And, the, and then, and, and, the, and the winds and the waves, they had to obey him so that the disciple says, who is this? What manner of man is this that even the, the, the wind obeys him? That's, that's what we're talking about through necessary causes, the laws of nature. Even God accomplishes his purposes the laws of nature. But then there's a secondary cause. We call these free secondary causes, which are choices of angelic or human wills. We'll talk about that some more. But then there are what are, is what is called contingent causes. Contingent secondary causes. That's what we think of as random events. For instance, uh, uh, rolling dice. Casting lot, which was a way in scripture of seeking divine guidance. And so by providence, we say that God is even involved in the casting of lots. So what do we see concurrence in our text? Remember, God tells Joseph by way of an angel to take the family to Egypt. Here comes the concurrence in verse 14. The text says, Joseph takes the child and his mother by night and depart to Egypt. So once again, we experience Joseph's immediate obedience. Watch this. God calls them to leave. He's the first cause in the sense that he sent his angel to tell them to go to Egypt but God also was the first cause in that Herod was even on the throne. But Joseph was the secondary cause in that he freely chose to obey the word of the Lord. So in concurrence, we see this difficult doctrine of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. So as you figure out this idea of providence and this aspect of concurrence or cooperation, you're probably asking, what are we to make of the middle passage? 
when these babies are massacred by Herod? How does providence work in that situation? We said God is in control of all things. He's the first cause of all things. And then there are secondary causes. What, what, what does that mean? And I must admit to you, beloved, that this is difficult to understand. Here's what we do know. We know from the totality of Scripture that God was still in control even when those babies were murdered. Yet, for reasons only God knows, he permitted the evil actions of Herod to happen by way of Herod's own free, meaningful choice. God providentially determined not to intervene. God is still working providentially even when he allows human beings to make bad choices. Unfortunately, the focus is often on these babies. By the way, Bethlehem was so small that there was probably only about 20 babies. Not that that makes it any better, but just by way of context, there were, it was somewhere, but some people say between 15 and 25 babies who were murdered. And it's oftentimes we focus on the massacre rather than, woke, than focusing on what God providentially did by preserving the baby Jesus. And that's what's most important. Because if Jesus had been murdered in this massacre, then the world could never be redeemed. Before I leave this matter of the massacre of the babies, I want to share with you some thoughts from a minister from the 19th century by the name of Alexander McLaren. He was a pastor in England. And this is what he had to say as a word of comfort of these babies. He said, in their brief lives... These infants have won immortal fame. They died for the Christ whom they never knew. They died for that these lambs were slain for the sake of the lamb who lived while they died. That by his death, they might live forever. These little flowers of martyrdom Rose, roses by the whirlwind shorn head the long procession of martyrs. If not in intent, yet in fact, and we may be sure that they are now among the palm-bearing crowd, being the first fruits to garden the lamb. So then, preacher, you've told us you gave us a very, very basic introduction of this doctrine of the providence of God. What are we to do with this doctrine? What, did you just want to show us your theological acumen? Why would you share this with us? One, because it's in the text. We see God guiding, directing, preserving, and cooperating with mankind. But what is the significance for our lives today? Beloved, first, the providence of God helps us to see that we are able to live in the assurance that God is present and active in our lives. Say that again, Pastor. 
We are able to live in the assurance that God is present and active in our lives. He is not a God who is just there, but he's a God who is here. He is God with us. Oh, thank you, Jesus, that God is with us. That means he's not apart from us. He's not against us, but he's with us. God is not absent from our lives. God is an active participant in our lives. He, thanks be to God that he is with us. Because he's with us, that means he's aware of our joys and our disappointments, our trials and our victories. He is the God who is with us. And we can be sure that we are always in his care. Because of the providence of God, we can be sure that God will always provide our needs. Even as he was sending Jesus and his family into Egypt, these people who were just regular old peasant people, how could they afford a flight into Egypt? But here's how. God sent some wise men that gave them some gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and they were able to trade that in most likely to provide for them while they were in Bethlehem. Only God can plan and work that thing out like that. It's all because of his providence. Secondly, the providence of God helps us to know that nothing, absolutely nothing happens by chance. Nothing is random God is active in the world, guiding, directing, moving, and causing by, by, by one way or the other all things to happen. So we look to him and we trust him. Thirdly, the daily providence of God should fill our hearts with gratitude. Beloved, our mouth should be filled with thanksgiving. We should be thankful that God is involved in our lives. We should be thankful that God cares about the minutest of details in our lives. Listen, God is so concerned and involved in our lives that he knows the very numbers of hairs on your head. That's how much God cares about about us. But beloved, the providence of God teaches us that there is no devil in hell, no demon on the earth, no person in the world that can thwart the plans and purposes of God. See, see, the enemy thought he could get to Jesus through Herod, and if he could get to Jesus early, he, 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 wanted, to, he wanted to thwart the plan and purposes of God because he knew if Jesus got to the cross, it would be all over. But God got intervened and so that the devil could not prematurely end his life. It is futile to think that you could ever or anyone could ever 
thwart the plans of God. And that's good news for somebody in here because you are facing some difficulties, some challenges in this pandemic. You know God has a calling on your life. God has a plan and a purpose for your life. The good news is that the providence of God teaches us that there is nothing that can come between what between you and what God has planned for you. What God has for me is for me. And nothing can stand in between that because of God's providence. The providence of God also teaches us that there is a need to cooperate with what God is doing in our lives. And Joseph is our example of what cooperation looks like. He heard from God, and then he obeyed God. I know you're wondering, how do I know if God is speaking to me? He has spoken through his word. So then our response is to seek God and his word, seek his face, his will, and then we respond by cooperating. We obey. We do the will of God. But pastor, what about those times where the Bible doesn't speak clearly about who I'm supposed to marry, where I'm supposed to go to school, if I'm supposed to remain single, or or where I'm supposed to go to church, or where I'm supposed to work? What's my career? What's the next step? Well, then you seek God's face by way of prayer, godly counsel, an inner conviction of the Holy Spirit. And beloved, he will guide us. And where he guides, we must follow. I close with this as I was writing this part of the sermon. I couldn't help but think of the old gospel song that says, Lead me, guide me along the way. For if you lead me, I cannot stray. Lord, let me walk each day with thee. Lead me, O Lord, lead me. That's the providence of God. He preserves us. He protects us. He directs us. And he works alongside us to accomplish his will. Here is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you are the God who is involved in every aspect of our daily life. We thank you that you care about us and your care for us didn't just begin today or when we became saved. But you cared about us before the foundations of the world. And God, you made a way for us to be adopted into your family by sending Jesus to die for our sins, being buried in the tomb, and rising from the grave. And you have providentially given us the faith to believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, 
who took our punishment upon ourselves. And so, God, we thank you for this great salvation. And we pray that you will providentially touch the man, woman, boy, girl who may be listening to this message, that they will respond to the conviction of the spirit of their sinfulness so that they come crying, what must I do to be saved? And they here clearly believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. God, we thank you that you have providentially led us here this morning to experience this worship through song, and the worship through the preaching of your word. Now, God, we pray that we would cooperate with what we have heard this morning and that we would not just be hearers of your word, but doers as well. Give us grateful hearts and let us praise you that you care for us, you provide for us, you lead us, you direct us, you protect us, and you preserve us. What a mighty God we serve. Father, we pray and ask these things. In the matchless, marvelous, majestic, and mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.